Hello and welcome to Reproducibility. I am Sam Parsons here in Oxford. The next voice you'll hear is Amy Auburn. <laughs> Hello, I'm in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And here's Sophia Kruvel. Where are you? Hi, I'm in Amsterdam, also in the Netherlands. Excellent. And we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Priya Silverstein. Did I get that right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks very much. As everybody knows, I have a history of not being able to pronounce names that continues to this day. Um, so, um, hi, Priya. Thanks for joining us. Who is in at? Yeah, exactly. You didn't ask her where she is. And where are you, Priya? <laughs> um, I'm currently uh, visiting my mother in London for her birthday. Nice. Excellent. And you're, you're at Lancaster, is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Um, so you initially came on our kind of radar giving a presentation that I believe Amy was at. Yeah. So I, I saw Priya present at a badass all-woman symposium in Paris for oh, ICPS. Um it was mainly about, it was about null results. Um, mm-hmm. And there were lots of different takes on kind of how you approach null results. And um, naturally what we want to do in the next few episodes is to kind of he- hear loads of different opinions from kind of early career researchers um, and just kind of hear a lot of different voices. And so, uh, yeah, I thought Priya gave a really great presentation about doing replications, and we haven't really talked about kind of doing replications as an early career researcher, as your PhD. You know, it does come with kind of concerns and, and risks, and but it's also kind of really important, isn't it? So I thought it'd be great to to get Priya on to to talk about what she's been doing. How exciting! Thank you for inviting. Me. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe maybe you so. Maybe just give us an overview where where you're at in your PhD, you know, like, and maybe how have replications played a part in it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm currently in my third, hopefully final year of my PhD, um, but replications came into it very, very early. So my first study of my PhD was a replication study. Um, so originally the point was kind of the same as for a lot of PhD students, I think, was to kind of see where to start uh, in terms of finding um, an effect that I wanted to uh, look at building on, basically. So there was this cool finding, uh, but we weren't really sure. No one had been able to, re- well, no one had tried to replicate it um, in uh, in infancy research. Um, and I had some extension ideas, but I thought before extending it, it would make sense to just see if we could simply replicate it with exactly the same um, uh, manipulations. Um, so that was meant to be like a quick, a quick check in my naive first year PhD head, uh, a quick check and then move on to extending it. Um, things got more complicated where we weren't able to replicate it. Um, and so it became a much kind of bigger project um, where we actually ended up doing two versions, one, um, one before talking to the original author um, and one after, and uh, neither actually replicated the original effect. So uh, that was interesting. So <laughs> originally the point was kind of to be able to build on it, but it became something very different when we weren't able to replicate basically. And can you, uh, could you just give a quick kind of coverage of what the effect was that you were looking to replicate just to get an sure. idea about the research itself? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So this was a study um, by Yoon Johnson and Chibras, um, and it was on uh, infant memory biases. So it was using uh, what we call the viola- violation of expectation paradigm. So it's basically where something happens that is meant to shock the infant, and therefore they'll look at the screen for longer. So looking time is one of the main measures that we use. Um, and it basically uh, looked at whether they uh, remembered different properties of the object depending on the context that the object had been interacted with. So um, there was a social context where the object was pointed to, um, the actress in the video spoke to the infant and um, greeted them and stuff like that. Um, and uh, there was another condition that was non-social where the woman um, just kind of talked to herself, didn't uh, look at the in- infant and just tried to reach the object for herself. Um, and they found that Um, Basically, in the social context, infants only remembered the identity of the object, but not its location. Um, And in the non-social context, they only remembered the location, but not the identity. So the cool thing was basically that there was this double dissociation um, because the kind of theoretical, uh, the, the theory that this came from, uh, wanted to basically the, the proponents of the theory wanted to be able to say it's not just attention it's something that's very specific that about a social context and it's specifically making infants remember the information that's going to be relevant to learning more about that object so that was why kind of the double dissociation was important hmm, so like what sort of feedback did you get in the process of kind of like what you know people reacting to you doing a replication before you actually started the replication and then during the process that then actually kind of extended a bit longer than you you yeah. suppose at the beginning yeah so um my my supervisors for example were really like um keen for me to do it i think because they thought it was going to be like a quick thing and it would be a good first foray into my own infant research basically um They had very different ideas of where to take it after the first non-replication. So I think that I I definitely had some people in my ear kind of saying, okay, give up, like just move on to something else as quickly as possible because you're not going to be able to publish that. So this has all kind of been a waste of time. Um, And then I had other people in my ear kind of saying, you know, no, we need to get to the bottom of this, work out exactly why, um, do another version with small, small modifications. And I ended up going with that side because I kind of thought... Um, it's true that maybe if, if there's obvious thing, well, because, because straight after I was unable to replicate, I contacted one of the original authors and they did have ideas for why they thought it wasn't able, um, we weren't able to replicate. I thought it kind of, I was just curious basically. So, um, to see whether their ideas were true. So I thought I'll give it one more go. Um, uh, and then at least, uh, I had, I had the idea that then I'd have two versions, no matter what the outcome um, that would be um, important for people in the field to know about already. That's cool. So do, what sort of reasons did they suggest for the um, the non-replication? So um, there was certain things in... So because I'd based the first version purely upon the methods described in the paper, and I think we all know, you know, <laughs> uh, especially papers that were like more than 10 years ago, um, the, you know, there wasn't... There wasn't really a way then to, uh, you know, like now we have the OSF, we could have all these supple- ways of having loads of supplementary materials and the videos and everything like that. Um, so because I was just going up, um, going on the methods described in the really short paper, um, I'd misinterpreted some of the inclusion criteria, for example. Um, uh, and then also think uh, they there was actually a typo in the original paper. <laughs> so um, the amount of time that the object was occluded for was actually half 
what they'd said. So, (laughs) (laughs) so this, um, and with, when you're working with infants, three seconds versus six seconds is quite a big deal. Um, especially if one of the inclusion criteria is that they have to not look away during that time. (laughs) So yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, That's that's annoying though. If you like do the whole study and then it's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) sad. Yeah. It was kind of annoying. Yeah. And also something that's surely so severe that should have been corrected by now. Did they correct it in the paper? Uh, well, because the first author is no longer in academia, I think they can't, um, which is another stupid system. It, um, yeah, that's yeah. awkward. Mm. <laughs> so, so sort of legitimate reasons for potential non-replications, but also for some quite silly reasons, perhaps. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So some of the other reasons were a bit more theoretical. Um, I won't go into them, but yeah, like they were all things that would be quite small changes to make to the videos, um, but could have big theoretical impact if it were true that it only worked in one context and not the other, mm. if that makes sense. So it was interesting. Um, so the, the second study, was that then intended to kind of follow up on the original author's feedback to kind of make it closer to their paradigm? Mm-hmm. Was that the end? Yeah. Yeah, that was the main purpose. So it was kind of like this is what we got from the original paper. This is what we got after talking to the authors, basically. Cool. Hmm. And so did you, so you ended up publishing that study? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were able to publish it in a special issue of Infant Behaviour and Development that Mike Frank edited, um, which was called Replication, Collaboration and Best Practices in Infancy Research. So I was really, really happy about that. Sounds like a cracking issue. <laughs> I can't wait to read all the rest. <laughs> yeah, cool. So so I guess you had a positive experience kind of, you know, getting getting down into replication and really mm-hmm. not giving up at the first instance. I guess that mm-hmm. was a big decision you made, isn't it? You mm-hmm. know, you either don't replicate and you just switch or you, you go further. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I mean, I think there's always going to be open questions even after both versions about um, because there's especially when you're making when you're creating video stimuli, there's always going to be small differences. So you can always say that it's it's that it could be one of those things. But I think it was really nice to have because we had talked to an original author, then we kind of had that safety of if if there was anything after that that they came up with, that was kind of on them in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, kind of like the red, registered replication reports, isn't it? Where the yeah. authors kind of pitch in as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. No, that's really. I guess like it. It's still not common enough, is it? Because, uh, like, you know, you were you were kind of giving a presentation about this other conference. You know, it was it was that <laughs> it was that novel that doing these mm-hmm. replications really getting spending all the time on them as a PhD is and you know we always talk about replications but we need to do more replications but a lot of us just just don't so kind of what mm. where do you think replications should sit in the kind of early career experience I mean if I was like the queen of the world then I would want all PhDs to start with a replication because I, I kind of feel like, well all empirical experimental PhDs because I feel like 
yeah, like so often you see, I've, I've seen other PhD students, you know, trying to build on something, getting kind of confusing results and it being really um, uninterpretable without knowing whether the original effect that was assumed is true. I mean, I think it's great if you're building, if you're building on something that's already been heavily replicated, then, then obviously you don't need to do that. But I think often that's not the case. Um, and we're just kind of making assumptions um, from maybe one cool paper, which, um, which yeah, isn't isn't great. <laughs> Sophia, are you going to replicate when you start your PhD? Um, uh, I haven't thought about that. I have to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess you want to do theoretical work. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not only theoretical work, right? But I guess, yeah. I mean, the meta. I guess. I guess for meta. Yeah. Would we, I mean, would would I? Yeah. Would I be doing replications of of meta science studies, or um, also just like just a random replication of a random <laughs> topic? You know. Um, yeah, it should. It, yeah. Yeah, I have to think about that. I guess like something we've been discussing a lot in Eindhoven is like that in meta science, a lot of the studies are based on the one big re large scale replication project, you know, the open science collaboration, mm -hmm. which I think was only about 150 studies. And so it's kind of like you're basing uh, like a lot of meta science off a really limited sample, but this is like going off topic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I, I definitely take back um, where I said, if I was queen of the world, I would like make everyone do replications at the beginning of their PhD, because I think like, to be honest, it, that exactly it, it there's, it, it's such a psychology, even, even just psychology is so varied and there's so many kind of different requirements within the subfields that you can't make sweeping statements mm. like that. But I guess, I guess I kind of just mean it should be an option that people think about a lot more as a serious option and yeah. something that could, they could actually benefit from rather than being a waste of time. Yeah, well, I think in Paris, I, I talked to Ben Jones from Glasgow and I think they are you know, correct me, internet, if I'm wrong. <laughs> but um, at Glasgow, I think they're either trialing or they've rolled out or they're thinking of rolling out that each PhD student should do a registered replication report at mm -hmm. the beginning of their PhD just to kind of mm -hmm. train them on that methodological aspect. And I do think it's, you know, it's come with positives and negatives in that Registered replication reports can take. I, I think that's what you were talking about as well. Is that they can take really, really long, mm. <laughs> um, and you often think, "Oh, my replication is going to take me like four months," you know. And then in the UK and in the Scotland, you you know, PhDs are only three years mm -hmm. um, max four, so um, people then do feel the time pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess replications always take longer than you expect. Just like every study takes longer than you exactly. expect. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, I guess you just have to pitch it against, um, how much time you could potentially waste going down a dead end. Um, and whether, I think another thing I talked about in my Paris talk was like, at what point to do a replication, because you could get into a situation where you don't begin with one, um, and then you try and build on something, but then because the results are uninterpretable without a replication, then you end up having to do it anyway. And then if you're unable to replicate at that point, then you kind of think, well, then why did I do all, all the rest? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think it takes a lot of time, but you're very clear on what you can get out of it. So I guess if that's mm. something that is necessary for you to have that confidence in the effect before you build on it, then then it's worth the time. Yeah, I think of how many like, people have 
Uh, sorry, I'm talking too much today. Sam, start. Um, but it, it seems like a strong way to actually ensure that your kind of replication attempts are actually going to be kind of used and to get out in the world. Because I, I imagine, or from at least talking with a lot of people, most PhDs probably start essentially with a replication study somewhere in there. But the problem is, is that normally it ends up exactly as you said earlier, Priya, kind of you had to make the decision between do I look at something else or do I follow up this null result and kind of dive a bit further into it. And I think most people, um, through faults of bad incentives, um, go down the route of, okay, I must have done something wrong, let's look at something else. And I think that's probably one of the biggest causes of the ridiculously huge file draw problem that we kind of have it's mm. it's not the way that we want it to be i definitely um, have one of those in my file drawer. But it's, it's <laughs> difficult to kind of go down the route i think the the you've taken priya which is um very very strong to kind of actually find out why mm. um so so yeah that's really strong um mm. cool well i think we um Shall we take a short break now and then we move on to our other subjects that that we want to cover? Sure. Because time's flying. Yeah. Be back shortly. You are listening to Reproducibility, serving a discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at Reproducibility. Rate us on iTunes and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are back from the break talking to Priya Silverstein. Um, so, Priya, um, one thing that I noticed in your uh, Twitter profile is this phrase, uh, striving for open, reproducible, and diverse science. Mm-hmm. Um, I think diversity is something that is kind of often kind of thrown around, but not really actually put into. And I think we maybe forget about it sometimes a bit too much within mm-hmm. open science. It's kind of less of the common thing i think we've fallen fallen victim to that and not talked about it too much on the podcast as well so it'd be really nice to kind of hear your perspectives about diversity in science more generally but also about the kind of the state in open science yeah sure i'm really glad you picked up on that um (laughs) so i think that uh yeah i think i think that the concepts that can't really be um, torn apart that's kind of why I put them together I think that you can't have a science that is completely open if it's not open to everyone um, that's why I think I think um, there's a really cool um, I don't know if you've seen like the umbrella of open science on Twitter but it includes like equality diversity and inclusivity under it um, and I think that's really important I don't think these are separate issues I think they come from the same common goal of trying to make science and the world a better place and um a place where that's kind of fair and uh where where science is fair and i think probably all proponents of open science would agree that that's what they want so yeah we need to put that on the i've seen it in in slides before but it's definitely something we'll put in the show notes um because it is 
it is a very nice visualization of kind mm. of where where you're coming from there um is that so is that kind of what you're trying to convey in in that twitter bio which is definitely really well done <laughs> i love the word striving as well it's kind of like i'm you know just working hard and you know in that, i don't know i i really like it yeah thank you and i think like yeah striving is uh it's it's good because it acknowledges that you, we could everyone can always be doing better and i think that like we're we're very aware of that with regards to open practices you know like i feel like um people in the open science community are very open to kind of like saying okay yeah so now i've got pre-registration under my belt what am i going to learn next oh i might learn some r markdown or something like that you know like um very open to learning what you can do to be more and more open and i think that the attitude should be the same for for diversity no one's doing a perfect job so it's okay to kind of think about what you're doing now and think that it could be better and learn about new ways that you could um that you could strive for diversity more if that makes sense so is part of what you're um talking about when you're talking about the the open science sort of the uh, the ways in which the open science community um uh, needs to engage more with um um diversity i guess well i mean that sounds that sounds like a non-statement but you know what i mean i hope um is part of that this um debate about um like broken science mm -hmm. yeah um yeah i say so i think the the term broken science um was originally kind of used to describe the kind of boys club vibe that the open science community can sometimes have um and i think that i definitely I feel like I kind of sit sit quite neutrally on on that debate in that I've always felt very welcomed by the open science community and I'm not kind of I wouldn't consider myself a bro but at the same time I really do acknowledge that some of my kind of broy attributes that make it easier for me to slide right into that community um and I think that kind of um fits into something that I think a lot about um, with regards to um, gender and sexuality in, um, in, in science in general. And there's this, um, there's this really interesting thing that I've noticed, which is that I get this really weird type of male privilege because I'm married to a woman. Um, and so even though I'm a woman, I kind of get this weird thing where, um, I often find, um, male colleagues are a lot more comfortable, um, around me and kind of more friendly to me and more bro with me once they know that I'm married to a woman. Um, and so I think going back to the kind of broken science thing, I think a lot of people's concern is that it is a bit of a, um, a bit of a cliquey boys club and it feels, uh, and yeah, so I guess, yeah, that's, that's the kind of argument. Well, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, um, more or less the first time I was, I kind of felt like I had made people uncomfortable and I didn't even know. I don't know. Did we cover this on the podcast? We definitely talked about it in our, in one of our journal clubs. We actually, we were talking about a blog post, um, the blog post, the blog post contains swear words. Um, yeah. I had tweeted about it, I think using a swear word. Um, and somebody, 
kind of in, you know, in the nicest way in that you can point out stuff to people because kind of I, I was very happy that they pointed out that that actually can make people feel very uncomfortable. And, you know, should we be mm-hmm. discussing something like this in the journal club if it, if it does make people uncomfortable? And, you know, and for, for me, it was the first time where I was like, but, 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 but I didn't, you know, I didn't want. And then after sitting down and just reflecting over it, I was like, well, but this is something I need to work on. And, mm-hmm. and so I guess that's in our journal club I think the most stark time when at least that was when Sam and I were there I don't know Sam how did you feel about that that time Um, were you there when we talked about I think we talked about it separately I I don't know I'm sort of on on the fence with a lot of these aspects because uh some of them cross over with more general sensibilities some cross over with uh people's own kind of perspectives on the way that we should and shouldn't communicate more broadly. Um, And it's kind of hard to disentangle people's sort of natural way of talking and expressing themselves, um, especially when you you begin to talk about other things um, or things that are maybe wrong with science practice. Um, It was this journal club where Laura Fortunato called me out for swearing. Um, I don't know that I have much of a an opinion on swearing specifically. Um, I, I fully appreciate that it makes people uncomfortable, so I wouldn't make a strong argument that people should be able to. Um, I think that it's an, sort of yet another thing within open communication and especially social media communication where sort of disentangling people's natural way of expressing themselves and whether or not there was either some kind of uh aggression or harm or offense intended can be quite difficult um i think like the intention thing is really important because i think um a lot of the time intent we can assume for the most part that people's intentions are good um and i think that that kind of comes into the open science thing more generally, you know, like, yeah, we do have issues with, um, with kind of, uh, people, um, twisting results on purpose, but the, the bigger problem that we're trying to solve is people who have good intentions, but aren't doing things right. Um, even so, if that makes sense. So I think it's the same with these kind of things, like no one, I don't think people are suggesting that intentions are bad with these kind of things, but we just need to make more of an active effort to, uh, to be inclusive, even when we weren't trying to be exclusive, if that makes sense. So how would you recommend kind of an ECR who is really just at the beginning of figuring out kind of open science? And, you know, if we look at this umbrella, you know, how can we extend and embrace more of these different aspects and kind of have that let's get better at thing mentality, not just in, you know, whether you pre-register or not? Um, that's a really hard question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess engaging with all sides of the debate and keeping an open mind and kind of not, um, not limiting yourself to kind of, um, I think this is the case for any human, not just a researcher, but not limiting yourself to only filling your feet, your social media feeds and things like that with people who think the same as you, I think is the most, is one of the most helpful things you can do. Um, yeah, because I think even though that really builds a really good sense of community, it also kind of narrows your mind in a way. So, yeah. 
but it's a good question. I'll I'll go and and follow some people and uh, yeah no but I I do I do really I I think that's a really good piece of kind of actionable advice. Um, and I also something that it made me think of when you were talking about the swearing thing. I think another thing that um, is similar to that is like organizing meets in um, like uh, alcohol related environments. Like of course, like the intention is completely good. Like I love to like chill and have a beer at a conference with like people that maybe I've only met before on Twitter or something like that. Like it's so, it's so nice. It's really friendly, but that you do have to kind of keep in mind that then you are automatically excluding anyone who doesn't drink and you wouldn't actively choose to do that. So, but you are kind of doing that by not thinking about that when deciding where to have your meets. Yeah, that was mm, a... Especially because there's a kind of a thing where like, you know, even even if you're not someone who doesn't drink, even if you're just someone who doesn't want to drink all the time, um, it feels yeah, it feels like a, a lot of pressure mm-hmm. sometimes to to have to drink at that yeah at those kind of events. Mm-hmm. I remember in undergrad, like um, most in undergrad, do undergrad, like most event events had some kind of alcohol um, involved. <laughs> um, it's just a bit strange, yeah. But I think it's just second. It's so second nature for people, isn't it? And and I think that's isn't that kind of part of it is kind of trying to question um, like these decisions that kind of come automatic to you. You know, like I got I got a job. I'm gonna host drinks. You know, should in and just kind of trying to be a bit more to think that extra, extra step and, and, and think a bit more. Yeah. I don't know. I know. Yeah. I think, and I think it's important to distinguish, like if you, if you're having, Oh, you know, I've got a job, let's have drinks then completely up to you. You know, you're, you're doing that for yourself and to celebrate with the people that you know. So if you feel like then that's a fine thing to do because everyone you know would be fine with that, then that's fine. But I think you have a different layer of responsibility when you're organizing, for example, like, um, events that are tangential to a conference or something like that, or like, um, events that are organized as part of the department. Um, because then, then that's not about you anymore. That's not about your interests or the interests of the people that you know. So I think I think when you're organizing a conference or something like that, then you have a different layer of responsibility um, when you are uh, organizing like kind of a, a, uh, a social event tangential to a conference or um, maybe as part of your department or something like that. Um, then it's no longer about you and the interests of yourself and the people that you know. It's about making it as inclusive an event as possible for anyone who could possibly want to attend. So something that had interested me is that the kind of, do you think that things like this should be written down more, you know, and things like, and, and put into words and things like code of conduct, or do you think that would be helpful for people to kind of find their footing in some of this? Yeah, I think that would be, I think codes of codes of conduct are really important um, for conferences, but it's really important that they are stuck to as well. Cause I think often, yeah, having it isn't enough. It's really important as a tool to make sure that you're being held accountable. Um, and um, I see it a lot, a lot more for conferences, but I think it would be great to have it also for kind of departments um, and yeah, um, things like that. So, yeah. Something interesting that you see now more and more at conferences is that there are codes of conduct as such. Do you, do you mm-hmm. think that it's important to really flesh out 
kind of what we should expect and what behavior should be done because so often um, we just kind of forget and do what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think I think it's really important for codes of conduct to be created and um, a lot of attention to be uh, paid to the content within them. Um, and but I think they only work as well as the people calling out um, deviations from this. So um, and I think also they're something that work really well for conferences, but you don't see as much for kind of whole departments or something like that. Um, they tend to just kind of rely on the default EDI. Uh, statements. Um, what is EDI? Um, equality, diversity, and inclusivity. Mm. Um, yeah, so they they kind of usually have quite generic statements for universe, either the university level or the department level, but this isn't kind of uh, good enough for being able to uh, refer back to this when calling out bad behavior, basically. Mm. Yeah, I think we now have it in Oxford more for kind of harassment, but less for... Mm-hmm anything oh, so, else so really very like punishment <laughs> focused like isn't like where yeah. can the university get in trouble that's so bad yeah yeah it's really bad it, often like things need to get really bad for people to pay any attention to them which is obviously not fair on the victims mm. yeah i think it's both what i i really like about codes of conduct is that they don't have to go to the extremes um mm-hmm. like they really clearly lay out kind of what essentially what's right and wrong right mm. but I think my the flip side of that is that depending on how well it's kind of enforced or how well people are called out, it can also sometimes or potentially be a little bit kind of toothless, um, which I think actually some harassment policies come under that as well, in fairness. Um, I think that's what makes it difficult with these is kind of how do we actually enforce who is actually going to do the enforcing. Yeah. And I think, I think the thing is, is when we're talking about, um, whether we're talking about conferences or departments or, um, or anything, I think the answer to who should be calling this stuff out is everybody. Um, but I think that the burden should, the burden shouldn't fall on the minorities themselves. You know, people shouldn't, shouldn't be responsible. It shouldn't be all the gay people looking out for homophobia, you know, and, um, all the non-white people looking out for racism. Like, if anything, people who aren't part of any of these minorities should be the ones who are looking out for all of it um, and trying to bring people up. Um, that's my, yeah, that's what I would say. So kind of if you see something, kind of don't don't just sit there and, and read over it and scroll on. It's kind of being part of that conversation then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a part of it is opening your eyes and ears to what – what is bad behavior? Cause I think a lot of these things can be like just thought of as, as jokes. Um, I think especially to people who aren't from these, these groups. So like, um, or, or not jokes, but just not bad enough to be something that you should talk about. Like, um, an example that I have is that, um, someone was telling me about when they were, um, picking between different abstracts to give people, uh, who to give talks to for a conference that they were organizing. Um, and they said that it came down to kind of two people and they picked the one that had the non-Asian sounding name, uh, just in case, just in case the Asian person had an, um, incomprehensible, incomprehensible accent, even though we had like, first of all, that is just ridiculous on every level, but 
the abstract was perfectly written and you have no idea whether someone with uh, with uh, from a name you cannot at all tell how someone speaks or where they grew up even or anything like that even like it's just so many layers of wrong that's ridiculous also that they were that they felt comfortable um telling you that i mean what yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's yeah it's even more ironic because um because i'm half indian but then because uh i think because i look white then i get a lot of people kind of feeling comfortable enough to say this stuff in front of me um and yeah it's it's horrible oh but i so i i, I meant i meant more i meant i meant less because sort of because you're not like white but i meant no yeah. i know that i know that's not what you meant yeah, yeah. I, mean, i meant more like, like, like something that, <laughs> it's 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 horrible in any situation yeah just like, like that that like in any case where people feel like they can say stuff like that that says something quite bad about the the general environment doesn't it i know yeah but yeah of course i mean it's i guess it's i guess it's actually even worse if they if they then make a distinction between like oh this is a white person so i can tell them this like racist thing because i won't fear any repercussions or something like oh definitely exactly Ugh. yeah Yeah, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have said that to someone who, like, they, who, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, where does power relationships play into this? Because, you know, it, it naturally becomes harder and harder for calling out behavior. If, for example, that person was kind of a senior professor, then mm -hmm. if it's somebody who's a PhD student, I think we often also forget where in the power relationship <laughs> we are, um, mm -hmm. especially if we're higher up and we forget that, the person who's kind of lower, who feels less powerful might feel mm. more difficult to tell us if they're uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's why, um, I think it's the responsibility of everyone, but it's even more the responsibility of the people who have this power, um, to call this stuff out. Um, because, well, first of all, for the most simple reason, if they have a permanent job, then they don't need to be worried. You know, we're constantly, ECRs are constantly worried about where we're next going to be able to get a job and we don't want to say the wrong thing so that we kind of ruin possible relationships with a future employer or something like that. Um, so one thing is if you've got a permanent job, you kind of have <laughs> a bit more freedom to say what you want. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think the people in power should really, really be making a bigger effort with this. Hmm. So how do you feel like, um, you know, this is an open science podcast, so so would kind of calling out be the, the big thing, you know, if we can say we want to improve on, you know, one or two or three things mm. is kind of calling out more, do you think that might give, you know, have the most positive benefit on making sure that people do feel like they can be part of kind of a supportive community because naturally open science does mean oftentimes going against what is the norm in your own department or your own group. And that is already hard enough. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the main things that I would suggest like as a kind of um, active thing to do. Um, I think another big thing that's important is, um, so there's loads of, there's so many really great workshops and summer schools um, about open science that I've seen. Um, and I think that is, uh, that is so, so great. And I think that's really an opportunity where um, we can be getting people interested in open science that um, might either feel either actively feel excluded at this point or maybe just not have even been in these circles because because of um kind of not having uh, access to this um and i think one thing that you can really do when kind of organizing workshops for uh, training workshops for ecrs is um i've heard about some cool ways of uh, deciding who 
kind of gets a space, which are basically where you have like a minimum criteria for this is what we want anyone who's um, eligible to have. And um, out of everyone who fits that criteria, we then uh, can apply this software, which will select a most, the most diverse group of applicants. Um, and you choose what kind of factors you want to be diverse on, but it could be, it could be everything. It could be, you know, um, race, sexuality, um, uh, income, things like that. You choose, you choose what those factors are, but it selects the most diverse group out of that. And I think that's something that um, I've heard about being used um, for, for some workshops, but would be really great to be, um, see see more basically because I think um, so the software kind of sorry the software so you, all the applicants kind of disclose different things and then you tell the software kind of I think these dimensions are important to be diverse from and then the software chooses well though I guess that, 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 that very heavily relies on people feeling comfortable to disclose mm. lots of things right mm -hmm. yeah Cool. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, cool. and I think so. I guess yeah. you, you have to have like a, a like a general environment where people are okay, are okay with doing that. True. So using that kind of software um, kind of presumes that you already have an environment where people feel comfortable enough to share those things on an application form, like, so, like those things, like to share anything that makes them different, right? Um, so I guess like if like wouldn't I mean I don't know like if you already have that kind of culture, um, I wonder like how much you would actually need mm -hmm. that kind of software anymore. yeah yeah i think but i guess rely on that. probably more than i think i mean i think most i think most people will fill most people will fill out a kind of um you know you you might have a, a form at the end of an uh, of a survey that you're doing that just says you know how old are you um what ethnicity uh, are you like i think it's easy to have these questions at the end of an application and you probably won't get that many people who are choosing not to disclose that information and i think also you can make it i mean it depends how open you want to be right you can be open from the outset that that's that is how the application process works and in that in that sense then people know that that's um that's why they're being asked for that information and then it's up to them whether they mm. want to disclose that I don't think we specific. I don't think we really have a problem with people not wanting to disclose those attributes of them themselves. I don't think that's kind of the biggest problem. Well, I think that yeah, I I think that gives us a lot to think about. <laughs> um, it's definitely something where you know it opened up so many more doors where you can improve and um, something that's really interesting from the Windsor, there's a Windsor open science workshop I went to and mm -hmm. I kind of, a key takeaway from that was oftentimes people feel like, oh, it's so stifling. It's not stifling, but like you, all of a sudden you see all the things you're doing wrong and you think there's so much that you then end up not really implementing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and we often just think about that for, kind of open science practices mm -hmm. thinking like, oh, I need to do open data. I need to do pre-registration and I need to like make everything perfect and use Markdown and use Git. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you, um, you don't really do anything. <laughs> um, yeah. so mm -hmm. I guess it's, it's really just stepping away from that and trying to improve kind of a day at a time, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Christina Bergman calls it kind of like the buffet of open science. Like you should be able to just go up and get, take whatever you like and have as much of it as you want. And yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I do agree that that applies in this case in terms of like people should, I definitely think people feel scared to do anything about diversity because they kind of don't want to, they're kind of treading on eggshells and they don't want to do the wrong thing. I feel like 
opening up conversations is the first step and and being open to being told that's not okay or you know that's not the best way of approaching things and not kind of taking things defensively um is is the is the best way to approach these kind of things great well um i think i think that's probably the end of of the podcast so um yeah i think i we hope we opened up it definitely opened up a conversation for for me um and we should definitely think about kind of how we you know if any of our listeners have ideas of how or who to talk to about more about these things or how we can improve as a podcast like we are now embarking on a on a series of kind of trying to yeah, get get a lot of people's different voices and and ECR ideas kind of on the airwaves. So that would be be really cool um, to hear as well. I have two ideas for that. Um, one of which is it would be great to have someone who actually specialises in um, research on diversity within open science because there are there are people, <laughs> um, and so they could kind of. I I offered a very personal kind of. Uh, selfish view on it um kind of just as a spectator um so i think it would be cool to get kind of a more research oriented angle um and then the other thing uh is that we didn't really get to touch on um like diversity of opinions within uh diversity of opinions with regards to what what is good open science um so that could be another thing that we could that you could look at in the future yeah, great. Well, thank you for for being on um, with us no, on you. the podcast. <laughs> um, you, hopefully our listeners didn't realize too much how much of a Friday evening this is. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, thank you so, so much. Um, there is definitely so much there for us to reflect on and hopefully for our listeners to reflect on as well. And maybe we'll get some cool, you know, if anybody has any questions or comments, do send us a tweet or an email um send us your suggestions um over direct messages or yeah we we would really love to hear from um more people on this so thank you very much